Hello, everyone. My name is Gabrielle, and I'm joined with my co-VP of Advocacy, Nicole, representing IIDA Southern California. Today, we are going to dig in a bit about advocacy in California and the history of it. Before we dive into the what, let's talk about the why. Why do we need to advocate for the interior design profession in California, Nicole? Well, as a professional dedicated to improving life and safety and the welfare of the public, I'm always advocating for spaces that are safe, equitable, and ultimately enhance users' experience. Design is powerful, and we are at the forefront of change. I agree wholeheartedly. So why the need for advocacy? Doesn't everyone already support this? Interior design is a relatively young profession formed out of architecture, and today it is heavily misunderstood. While some designers practice very similarly to what you see on television, that's only a small subset of the profession. Many interior designers provide designs for code-impacted environments that require careful analysis for the public safety. State laws are behind with how our profession works in the real world. Our goal in advocating for interior design is to define scope from other professionals and celebrate where each professional excels so we can work better as a team. In simple terms, we are asking to be treated with the same respect and given the same opportunities as our professional peers, all of whom have a clear path to licensure. Awesome. Sounds complicated, though. I think we may need to call on an advocacy expert to help us sort this out. Hi, all. Welcome. We are gathered here with Suzanne Molina, and I'll let her introduce herself. Hi everyone, um, my name is Suzanne. I am very happy to be here. Uh, just to give you a little bit of a background, I have been involved with advocacy since uh, 2007 and um, most recently served on the international board for IIDA, stepped down in 2016, have continued on as an advisor and am currently on the advocacy council uh, for the international board of IIDA. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. So we're talking a little today about the history of interior design legislation in California and its sort of complicated history. So if we go all the way back to 1990, we have SB 153, which was a certification of interior designer bill. Um, what do you remember about that time and what was going on with the legislature? Um, the, the one thing that I, I really remember, it was at the very, um, beginning of my career. Uh, but what I do recall is at that time, they did accept, um, a variety of different exams, including the NCIDQ. Um, and the, as a result of passing it, you would be a certified interior designer, which is what we still have today. However, there were no formal privileges associated with that. There was no stamping and sealing. The scope was um, minimal to non-existent as it pertains to commercial interior design. And it did create the CCIDC, the California Council of Interior Design Certification, which is our, our private state board. Is that right? That's correct. In, uh, in 2005 and 2006, there was a coalition formed with interior design by ASID, IIDA, uh, in pursuant of registration for interior designers. Uh, what do you remember from 
from that period? So essentially what really drove that is um, we, were, we were part of the uh, CCIDC, um, and, which was a coalition uh, for across the state of California for interior designers. And because of the, um, I'm going to say non-acceptance of the certified interior designer, um, we, ASID and IIDA got together and wanted to pursue other avenues. And so they formed IDCC and um, it was primarily IIDA and uh, ASID members at the time. And the goal was to really push forward for either strengthening of the current legislation, the bill that was in place to be able to give us some rights for commercial interior designers or to pursue, pursue other avenues. And at that time, do you remember what was going on with AIA? Were they in on any of these conversations? What did that look like? So at the time, uh, and this is something that we have really evolved with over the years, um, at that time, we were really at the mercy of our lobbyists. We didn't know what lobbying entailed. We didn't know how to talk to legislators. We didn't know that we should be talking to legislators. And we really deferred to our lobbyists. Um, the AIA was not part of the conversation. Uh, we really were just talking amongst ourselves. And it wasn't until later, as we were looking to introduce other bills, that we found um, that there was a lot of uh, misrepresentation of what we did, what we were pursuing, and, uh, and the best way to go about it. In uh, 2008, we introduced a Senate bill, SB 1312, that got pulled prior to being voted on. Uh, what happened with that bill? So we actually met with the, um, the Business and Professions Committee. We did have an author for the bill. We uh, went to Sacramento, we testified, and there was uh, such a large opposition that they advised us against moving any further and spending the money on, on pursuing anything that essentially the bill was dead in the water. And so we pulled the bill rather than having negative, um, uh, having, having a, a negative association with it. And this bill was all about establishing voluntary registration for interior designers based off of the NCIDQ exam requirements um, and all of that, correct? That is correct. And the goal was to maintain the existing structure that had been put in the original bill back in SB 153 in the 90s and really create kind of a second path for people who needed stamp and seal privileges. That was sort of the intent, correct? That is correct. That is correct. Now, Suzanne, you mentioned stamp and seal. Can you explain what that means? So as we, as we know, as commercial interior designers, in order to uh, have our drawings approved during the plan check process, they need to be stamped and sealed. And typically this stamp and seal needs to be done by a registered architect. Um, with the CID, there is minimal acceptance of it. 
throughout the state. It's really up to each municipality as to whether or not they will accept the stamp. I have had personal success in two municipalities, um, Pasadena and Escondido. Um, but the bulk of, of the cities where we do the work, the larger cities with Los Angeles and San Francisco, as an example, they don't accept it. And the main reason they don't accept it is that there is no uh, real defined scope associated with SB 153. Got it. So there's, there's no universal acceptance across the state of California. Correct. Okay. So in 2009, um, CCIDC introduced a, a, a new exam, is that the IDEX exam, that's the current exam. It's been updated several times, but that's the title. That's correct, yeah. That, and that was actually literally overnight. We had no idea that this was coming. Prior to that, as we've said, uh, there were a series of exams, including the NCIDQ, that were uh, accepted to become a certified interior designer. And in conjunction with that, you had the California Codes exam. The IDEX replaced all exams, including the California Codes exam. Uh, and one of the biggest differences for us at the time is that the exam was purely multiple choice. There was no practicum, nothing. And for those that have not taken the IDEX or the NCIDQ, can you uh, speak a little bit about the NCIDQ and how that differs from the IDEX? Uh, what we so so the IDEX is a multiple multiple question exam. There, as I said, there is no practicum. Um, the NCIDQ has three parts to it. One part you can take uh, upon graduation, and then the next two portions um, there is the professional codes, and then there is the practicum portion. The argument that we would get oftentimes from CCIDC when we tried to pursue legislation that was um, that accepted the NCIDQ, the argument that we often got was that it was too rigorous. It was too hard to pass. Uh, and our, our answer was, you know, we're working in a code impacted environment. It should, it be, should rigorous. be rigorous. Exactly. And what, what exactly is the, the practicum part of the NCIDQ? So the practicum part of the NCIDQ is actual problem solving. Um, and I will say, I, since they have gone completely digital, I don't know exactly how they have done it, um, but it used to be that you would have a problem that you needed to solve from a space planning perspective, and then you also had other components where you had to do some lighting design, you had to draw details, you had to annotate them correctly. So you had to have an understanding um, of how to apply the codes the planning premises, understanding programmatic requirements, um, and then you would be you would be uh, judged based on that. Gabs, it sounds like we have a future podcast mapped out. We'll have to have a specialist from NCIQ come and speak about his exam. Yes, we shall. Um, so, getting back to the, the timeline, after SB thirteen twelve kind of went down quietly. Um, what happened with AB 2482? I think that was in 2012. With, with this legislative bill, we gave it another shot. Um, we came to the table. We thought that we were much more prepared. We were more prepared amongst ourselves. 
Um, again, we had an author for the bill. We went before the Business and Professions Committee. Um, we, again, went and testified in Sacramento and had uh, a line around the inside of the room as well as outside the room of opposition uh, that were telling the legislators that this legislation was going to prevent them from being able to practice when, in fact, all it was was really a strengthening um, of the current legislation for those that, that were working in the code-impacted environment. Um, again, we were advised to, uh, to pull the bill and to, for the first time, what we heard to really speak with our opposition. And so this was really a turning point for us as far as legislative efforts were concerned in California in that um, we realized, one, we needed to talk to our opposition. And even if we didn't come to an agreement with our opposition, at least we could show legislators that we had made the efforts, which is what they were looking for. Uh, the other thing that we realized is that up until this point, we had predominantly relied on our lobbyists to talk to the legislators in advance of any hearings, anything like this, and explain the bill and why we were pursuing um, legislation. And we realized as we were speaking with legislative staff that they didn't get what it was that we do as they asked us why we really wanted to be regulated when we were just you know picking pillows and draperies and things like that. Um, and that's really when the conversation shifted and we started talking about the code impacted environment about egress. We showed them we would actually meet with legislators and bring construction documents and show them what was included in the construction documents, what we had to do for Title 24, and, um, and all the associated detailing for, for our designs. And those were aha moments for the legislators. And this really helped us to set forth uh, a much more defined path. And this is when you realize that there was really a lot of educating that needed to be done, not only to the public, but to the administration and to the legislature. Um, so that kind of became your focus in the years to come. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yes, we would have um, days on the Capitol Hill where we would get 20 designers that would go up there and we would meet with various legislators, sometimes from our, our home office. Um, sometimes from other other jurisdictions, and just explain to them why why we felt that it was important to have strengthened uh, legislation for us to be able to truly stamp and seal for a prescribed scope. Suzanne, how do you think this affects interior designers who've been working for small firms or independent interior designers who maybe don't have the breadth of some of the larger firms? Is it impacting them fiscally, do you think? When you ask, is it impacting them, if you mean, is it impacting them with the current status of the CID? Absolutely. Uh, having had a small firm, uh, it was extremely challenging. Uh, we would have to bring on an architect to stamp and seal when we were working in, in jurisdictions or municipalities outside of Pasadena or Escondido, uh, which was most of our projects. Uh, so yes, it, it was very, very challenging. Um, what I found ironic is that during that time 
in order to get liability errors and emissions insurance for interior design, we had to have taken the NCIDQ. And yet here it was not recognized in the state of California. That's very interesting. What do you think we need moving forward with our legislative path for interior design as a profession in California? Um, I, I think we have a path. There's two paths that we can move forward. One is uh, strengthening of what we currently have um, or a tiered um, certification or registration within the state of California, um, both of which I think are, are good paths to pursue. And I think it's really just up to the legislation and the climate as to which one would be more successful. Um, however, and I think this is really for anyone listening to this here, the most important thing to remember is that while we don't live in the legislative environment, you know, we don't talk to our legislators every day. Um, we're not uh, involved with the, I'm going to say, establishment of uh, regulations and such. We can't rely on just a handful of people to make this happen. And um, we really need to, as a profession, we need to come together. And if and when legislation is being introduced, we need to understand what it is that's being introduced. As many of us as possible, if we can go talk to our legislators and let them know what is being introduced and why it's important, they want to hear from their constituents. They don't want to hear from someone that lives in, in another county or another part of California. They want to hear from the people that are voting them into office and why it's important to them. And so that's really on us, everyone, again, listening here, everyone in the profession, to come together, speak to your legislators, write a letter um, of why it's important. When they have that stack, they may not read yours specifically, but if they have a stack of 150 letters from constituents, that matters. It seems interesting to me that um, architects would wanna take on the liability of stamp and ceiling drawings that maybe they are not the best experts in. Is there any kind of feeling from architecture towards promoting legislation to protect interior design, knowing that there are design partners and there's a real relationship between both fields? So the, the relationship between architects and designers has always been, I think, very interesting. Uh, if you talk to the individual architect, in most cases, they are in support of interior designers and interior design legislation. They understand what it is that we do, that we are educated for this, that we have the um, experience for it, and that we're qualified to, or should be qualified, to stamp and seal our own documents. Where we have run into uh, issues as far as this is concerned has historically been with the AIA. Um, however, that is starting to soften. We've had successes over the years um, with a number of different states where the AIA has either backed down, uh, they've softened their stance, or in some cases they've actually come out in support from a, a national perspective. 
Um, this is actually very good news, especially for California, that we can hopefully, as we continue to have uh, conversations with our opposition and you know, with other people at the table, that we can hopefully um, have the AIA, if not be in support of us, to be neutral and not speak out against us. Yeah, the national momentum has been very encouraging. I mean, most recently with states such as Illinois, Wisconsin, and Iowa, but even just within the last year, AIA National has come out as neutral, uh, which has been just a huge game changer. So that that is really good to hear. Yeah, it's been massive. It's It's very exciting. Well, Suzanne, thank you very much for joining us. It's been enlightening to learn a little more about our legislative timeline in California. It is fairly complex, so please hang on in with us for our future podcasts. We'll be going into depth on some of these topics and what the future is for interior design legislation in California. Thank you both for having me. Thank you so much. Uh, well, that was enlightening and insightful. So what are our takeaways, Gabs? Well, Nicole, it's clear that a lot has happened, but there is still a lot of work to do. I'm happy to say that this message is finally sticking and we seem to be picking up traction in pursuit of legislation. Speaking of legislation, Nicole, can you recap what's currently on the table for interior design? Of course. Last year, we wrapped up the sunset review process for the existing bill we have. Long story short, this showed us that we need to take a different approach if we want to truly carve a path for licensure. It was made clear that the lack of clarity in the current code was making our efforts more difficult and that we need to take an active approach over the passive one we've used in the past. Earlier this year, we supported a bill that continued the existing condition, essentially laid a foundation for us to move beyond it. In our discussions with the AIA and with the administration, we feel there's some common ground and agree that more direct path needs to be established in order to protect and promote all professions equally. The Business and Professions Committee has also agreed to work with us and on defining what this means. Wow, sounds like we're at an exciting time for change. So what can our listeners do in response to this episode? Well, the simple answer is to be an advocate for yourself and for the profession. Talk to your peer professionals, to your boss, talk to your clients about what designers actually do and why you want to be a licensed professional. That's great. What's the not so simple answer? Take action. Send letters to your representatives. Reach over the line and engage with architects and engineers and stand up for our rights as an interior designer. Host an advocacy event workshop at your work. Get involved with advocacy throughout your local city center. Let your voice be heard. Great. Well, thanks, Nicole. Sounds like we have much more in store and may need to bring in our lobbyists in the future to talk about how this all plays out and the more technical side of it. Stay tuned for more Fireside Chats. Mm -hmm.